0: Good morning, Church family. If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis, the thirty seventh chapter, Genesis chapter thirty seven, And I know you're way past that now, but given the circumstances of last week, we're going to uh, we didn't want to have one sermon out of the whole book of Genesis, so we're going we're going to be in Genesis today and in Job uh, next week, I know you're reading through, hopefully you're faithfully reading through Job this week. The message is entitled Echoes of the Messiah in Genesis." You see, some verses one through eleven in chapter thirty-seven, verses fifteen through twenty-six in chapter fifty. So, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter thirty-seven and look there with me at verse two. Read that out loud with me. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, of course, that tells us that we've, we're making a, it's a transition. Now, literary transition. We're moving into a, a new section of the book of Genesis. It's one that's devoted. To Jacob, whom we meet as we read about his father, uh, met as we read about his father, Isaac. But, but you'll recall, as you read through that, the leading man of the Jacob section of Genesis is, in fact, Joseph. He's mentioned twice as many times as, as Jacob is over those 14 chapters. Now Jacob won't be ignored, but it's Joseph who, besides God, who is always at the center stage, Joseph is as well. And if we dig a little deeper today, we're going to discover a story that's just full of profound theological implications. First and foremost, we see the sovereign hand of God ruling everywhere, ruling and overruling the decisions that people make. And in the end, God raises up a hero, He saves a family, and creates a nation that will bring blessing to the whole world. And we see behind the story, the events that transpire, the character's actions, we see the the heart of a covenant-making God who is always, always, always keeping His promises. And we're also going to see that Joseph points us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. More on that a little bit later. So we're going to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 37. Those are 11 verses, and then we'll read in chapter 50. Would you please stand and honor the reading of God's Word? Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and, and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then we flip over to chapter 50, beginning in verse 11. Excuse me, verse 15. love to hear the turning of pages. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring, it about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. Got ahead of myself, didn't I? So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of... Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you should carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for Your Word. Father, every day, every time during the day that we turn to Your Word, it never fails to speak to us, to give us instruction, wisdom, to call us into accountability, to encourage us, to exhort us. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. And we pray today, Lord, that everything that's said will be spoken, empowered by Your Holy Spirit, and come through Your Word to our ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. First thing I think we need to see here is that believers are imperfect people God uses to accomplish his perfect purposes. I think it was Martin Luther who popularized that phrase you read there God uses crooked sticks, it should be, to draw straight lines. Clever phrase there that, that expresses the notion that God will work through imperfect people to accomplish. His perfect will. And, and yes, sure, we know that God calls us to, our minds to be transformed, right? To be newed, to, to be transformed in our words and our thoughts and our actions. We know that, that God calls us to strive for moral and spiritual purity. But the reality and the good news for us is He does not wait for us to be perfect before He uses us. In fact, if God were to say to His children, Okay, let only those who are without sin come and serve me. There'd be none to serve, right? But though we're not perfect, we are called to be humble and obedient and and then willing to do God's will. And then He can and He will work through us as conduits of grace and truth and love. The famous American evangelist Dwight L. Moody wrote, There was a time when I used to be troubled a great deal about these Bible characters. I used to think that because they were saints, everything they did was right. And I could not understand how it was that God would permit them to do some of the things they did and not be punished. But then we come to a character like Jacob, and we find that God had grace enough to save him, and I think there's hope enough for any of us. But if we believe the Word of God, we understand what Moody was talking about. I mean, our default perspective, sure, is, even if we know better, is to think of the main characters of the Bible as kind of being above the fray, saintly angelic even not fallible and and disobedient as we are always steady in their faith rock steady and seeking god's will but the truth is the truth is these prominent people in the bible drama are just as frail and flawed and frustrated as we are and still god uses these imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes rachel and leah were conniving wives who Competed for Jacob, who by nature was treacherous and deceitful. His name Jacob means a planner and a deceiver. And we'll read soon about Moses, who was a fugitive from justice, wanted for murder in Egypt. But God used him to to lead the Israelites out of captivity and inspired him to write the first five books of the Bible. And you remember Gideon, of course. It'll be a while before we get there, but here's a frightened farmer who God turned into a courageous general warrior. Jeremiah, the the weeping prophet, right? Good nickname. Because he was overwhelmed often with this whole ministry thing, sharing gloomy messages with the people while shedding these, these anxious tears before God. but God strengthened him, and he, and he stayed on the job faithfully through 40 tough testing years of Jewish history. And then there was Samson and David and, and Mark and, and, and Paul, and, and where you get the picture. It, it's, a, it's a false narrative that God calls and uses only perfect people people who are never discouraged people who never want to quit people who never experience failure the facts tell a different story Moses and Elijah became so discouraged that they asked God to take their lives Job and Jeremiah cursed their birthdays wished they'd never been born David hid in the desert out of fear of his foes and, and, and he questioned why God had forsaken him and so much for perfection right now I don't know, I don't know about you but I find it encouraging I find it helpful, therapeutic even, to realize the truth that God can and does use frail and flawed people to accomplish His purposes. People who make mistakes. People who want to do better, but sometimes don't. People who sometimes feel like they're no good to God, no good to other people, no good even to themselves. The important thing about these Old Testament believers, part of what made them who they were, allowed them to do what they did, was simply that they accepted themselves for who they were. They didn't try to be something they weren't. And here's the most important thing. It's critical. They dared to trust God to use them in spite of themselves. God certainly didn't approve of their disobedience. That's not what I'm saying. But He deemed them absolutely deemed them precious and he kept every promise every promise he ever made to them and if you and I want to apply this truth to our lives we're going to have to ask ourselves some tough questions like how does it make you feel to know that God is not dependent on you for his purposes how does it make you feel to know that not you nor anyone else can prevent the purposes of God from being accomplished how can you allow him to change your heart so that you become a a godly vessel for his purpose how, how does your belief in these truths affect how you view the world around you and your, your own life at this very moment? Tough questions. God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect purposes. Say God uses imperfect people. God uses and then believers are dependent upon and experience the grace of God. Look at this from another angle here. brings some balance to the discussion. And we as faithful believers, we know that there are consequences for our sins. We, we, we get that. We understand that. But we also grow and we learn from them as we depend upon the grace of God. One writer said, For the believer, life is a school where the lessons can often be difficult, but thankfully, grace is the teacher. Paul writes in Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are going to struggle, beloved. We're going to struggle with holiness, with doubt, with laziness, with procrastination, with selfishness. Say we're going to struggle. But even when we struggle... We can make progress in our Christian lives. We can still learn about ourselves. We can learn how to better care for our brothers and sisters in the family. We can still learn about our Father. We can still learn in our times of struggle because grace is our teacher. Say grace is our teacher. Is our teacher. Faithful believers depend on and experience the grace of God. They know that they aren't worthy of the, of the least of God's mercies. Jacob knew that. He said in Genesis 32, verse 10, I am not worth all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown me, your servant. I crossed the Jordan with nothing but a walking stick, and now I've come back with these two groups. Faithful believers, we, we know that we're not worthy of God's blessings, but we also know that there would be no blessings at all apart from the good gifts that flow our way by God's grace. Are you aware of the need for God's grace in your life? That'll be right there at the surface all the time, beloved. If we're living by grace, we will depend on God to enable us. If we we are living by grace, we will not strive in our own power to serve God. If we're living by grace, we understand that He's working in and through us to accomplish His sovereign will despite... Well, despite us, believers are imperfect people who God uses to accomplish His purposes. Believers are dependent upon and experience the grace of God. And then believers are not all alike, and that's a good thing. A big part of what makes the church work is unity and diversity. One body, many members. The whole world, the universe that God created is diverse beyond our ability to perceive. God's very nature is diverse. You think about the Trinity for a second and how the Bible describes God. The Trinity is made up of distinct personalities united in a very unique sense and it sets Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world. The mystery of God is, as a Trinity is indeed unique. Scripture reveals three distinct ways that God has revealed. One being our... God, our Heavenly Father, creator, source of life, ultimate provider. Then we know God is the Son, Jesus the Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. He's God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Third, there's God the Holy Spirit. We view the Holy Spirit as our guide, our helper, our comforter. The Holy Spirit represents the wisdom of God. So the Trinity goes to show that the image of God is diverse in and of itself. Diversity is at the core and heart of who God is. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Let's consider them for a minute. All believers, but all very different from one another. Isaac, had a great beginning as a young man, through his obedience to his father Abraham, willing to be the sacrifice if need be, going to be sacrificed on the altar, willing to do that, later he would develop this this great spiritual sensitivity by the way he accepted rebecca god's choice for his wife and by the way he turned to god in prayer when things got really tough for the family but then isaac's walk of of faith kind of reached a plateau and began to decline in the end he was more concerned concerned with his menu for dinner that evening than in doing the will of god and we can learn from isaac the the difficulty and the importance of finishing well. Faithful believers strive to finish well. So there's Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob's spiritual experience, as you well know, was up and down. Time's kind of two steps forward and three steps back. I mean, He would earnestly pray about a problem and ask for God's help and then go out and do it his way anyway. And caught some elaborate scheme to get things done his way he was a master of manipulation he used bribes that were wrapped up like gifts it wasn't until it wasn't until god wrestled with jacob and broke him that he became israel the prince a prince with god think about joseph joseph his life was characterized by amazing consistency his trials seemed to only make him stronger and lifted him higher he absolutely had some tremendous times of suffering and he, he certainly wondered if the lord was ever going to hear him as he called out but as we, far as we know his faith never truly faltered we saw with the children's sermon he was a forgetting man a man who remembered to forget the evil things that had been done to him he lived by faith he died by faith and his faith brought about the salvation of the jewish nation so here are three important men servants of the lord and yet each one is unique. in the church at large today, we certainly have some Isaacs. People who start out on fire but fade away over the years into a, an apathetic nominalism, a casual Christianity. Studies done by the Barner Group indicate that casual Christians represent 66% of the U.S. population. I didn't say of the church or of Christians. of the U.S. population. Jesus dealt with nominal Christianity in one of his letters to the churches. The churches, the church Christians in Sardis wore the label, but Jesus saw right through them. And he said, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, there's all there have always been nominal Christians, there's always been casual church members, okay? Nothing new. And then we have, we have many like Jacob, who always seem to be kind of fighting to get out of their own way or struggling to get out of some mess that they've made for themselves. But somehow they manage to get it all together long enough to, to do something that glorifies God and end up blessing everybody else. But thankfully, and I believe this is true of Richmond Baptist Church, we have many, many rock-solid Josephs, men and, and women who through a lifetime of faithfulness end up serving in places of significant... Of leadership and they help a lot of people. And beloved, I believe we have more Joseph than we realize. people who faithfully do their job quietly, behind the scenes, consistently, no need of the limelight, faithful saints who deal positively with misunderstanding, who overlook criticism, who always give their brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt, and just keep on keeping on, seeking to glorify God with every thought and every word and every deed. And like the Old Testament, Joseph, even after they're gone, we remember their life of faith, and we encouraged ourselves to trust God. You Think about this. Despite their faults and failures, God was not ashamed to call Himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And beloved, despite our faults and failures, God is not ashamed to call us His children. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The writer of Hebrews gives us three proofs that Jesus the Messiah calls his people brethren. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, he's quoting from Psalms here, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing of your praise. And then from Isaiah 8, and again I will put my trust in him, and then Continuing in Isaiah. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The the remarkable thing to me is not that we are unashamed to associate with Jesus, but that He is unashamed to call me His brother. That's what's remarkable to me. We're precious to our Father. Say we're precious to Him. Spurgeon writes, he likes to dwell on that fact. They, and remember we're the they here, they're precious to him in themselves, but far more precious as the Father's gifts to him, gift to him. Some things are valued by you as keepsakes given by one you love, and so are we dear to Christ, because his father gave us to him beloved our father knows our weaknesses he knows our failures and yet he still loves us he still stays with us he helps us run with endurance the race that he's marked out for us toward the goal that he's chosen just for us god's faithful are not all alike and that diversity is a strength so believers are imperfect people god uses to accomplish his perfect purposes they're dependent upon and experience God's grace. They're not all alike, and that's a good thing. And the believers accept that life is a pilgrimage. According to Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, the patriarchs confessed that they were strangers, that is, foreigners. They were pilgrims, that is, exiles on earth. Think about a homeless person. A homeless person has no place to call home. A fugitive is running away from home. A foreigner is, well, far away from home. But a pilgrim, an exile, an exile knows that he's not home. An exile longs for his home. An exile is always heading toward home. They desire a better country, the writer of Hebrews says. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Beloved, the Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs had enough faith to visualize the future, the glorious city that God was preparing for them and for us. And they passed that heavenly vision along to their descendants. Listen, living like a pilgrim isn't about geography, though. It's about attitude. A pilgrim truly feels like a tourist, not a settler. For, for a pilgrim, everything tends to feel temporary. You often wonder if you truly belong here. And your perspective. Your perspective is governed by the eternal, not the temporal. You're always looking toward home and away from this world. And another thing, pilgrims make progress. If you find yourself at a standstill in your life of faith, you can bet that you have regressed from pilgrim to settler. For well, the pilgrim, there are always new promises to claim, new enemies to fight, new territories to gain. Pilgrims have a lot of privileges, but one privilege they don't have is that of standing still and taking it easy. The famous Scottish Presbyterian preacher Alexander White said, The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. We never arrive, and if we think we have, it's proof we haven't. Martin Luther said it probably even better. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Say, I'm a pilgrim. Believers are imperfect people. God uses to accomplish His perfect purposes. Believers are dependent upon and experience God's grace. Believers are not all alike, and that's a good thing. And pilgrims, excuse me, believers accept that life is a pilgrimage. And then a believer's priority is to become more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the goal and the work of God's grace in our lives. And nobody, absolutely nobody, models that better than joseph like jesus joseph was beloved by his father but rejected by his brothers like jesus joseph was punished for crimes he hadn't committed but he took it without fighting back like jesus joseph thought of others and he served him served them though they forgot him and his kindnesses like jesus joseph was separated from his father so that he might save his people Like Jesus, Joseph went from prison to the throne, from suffering to glory. Like Jesus, Joseph forgave those who wronged him and never held those evil deeds they committed against them. Like Jesus, Joseph wept over them because he loved them. Like Jesus, Joseph graciously provided a home for them and met all their needs. But what we can almost lose ourselves, as they say, in the trees of the detail and miss the forest. Joseph serves as a type, an archetype, of the work of Christ because he saved his people and because he brought them together in unity, in unity with one another. Throughout that entire patriarchal narrative, from from Abraham all the way to, 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 to Genesis 12, the families from whom would come the Messiah were never in complete harmony with one another. There was a strange relationship between Abraham and Sarah, between Abraham and Lot and their families and servants. There was major tension between Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. Esau, his brother, hated him, vowed to kill him. And Jacob, while trying to escape his brother's anger, fell under the wrath of Laban, who had tricked him into marrying one daughter when Jacob wanted to marry a different one. And even when God rescued saved Jacob from Esau's revenge. The brothers were reunited. you remember the story you read? They embraced one another. Esau continues toward Seir, and Jacob went south to Sukkoth and stayed there, and the word never tells us they got back together again. Late, later, Jacob's, Jacob's sons sold their own brother, Joseph, into slavery and told his father he'd been killed by a wild beast, allowed Jacob to live several years at the end of his life, believing this terrible lie that his favorite son was dead. But there's a climax to this entire, sometimes sordid record of events that began back in Genesis chapter 12. After God brings 70 members of Jacob's family into Egypt through the exalted Joseph, so that the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, you remember that, is preserved from extinction, Jacob then dies. And Joseph's brothers cry out to him, Fearful that Joseph's going to take his revenge upon them for their wickedness, but Joseph's broken-hearted. Right, he's broken-hearted over their fear, and he offers them and assures them his kindnesses. And so, finally, after four generations, the family from whom the Messiah would come is living together in harmony, all because one man was willing to suffer and forgive. Sound familiar? When we think of the story of Joseph in those larger terms, it does for us what an archetype is supposed to do. Joseph, as as a type of Jesus, is not a perfect one. I mean, how could he be? How could anyone be a perfect type? But it works, and it allows us to probe and appreciate Christ in a fresh way and perhaps see things that we might have overlooked. But here's the point point of application for us as well what joseph experienced as a faithful follower made him more like jesus christ Love, whatever you're going through right now grief sorrow job loss economic marital it doesn't matter whatever your issue is love, you face that with your chin up and your eyes on jesus and through it all he will make you more like him Believers are imperfect people. God uses to accomplish His perfect purposes. Believers are dependent upon and experience God's grace. Believers are not all alike, and that's a good thing. Believers accept that life is a privilege. Believers always have a, as a priority to become like Jesus, and then believers make a difference in their world. The Christian life is not about what we drag along with us, but what we send ahead and what we leave behind. Don't ever forget that. We come into this world with nothing, and we absolutely won't leave this world with a thing. Between that celebration of birth and the sorrow of death, we're just managers. We're stewards of what it is that God gives us. And God expects us to be faithful in that stewardship. And we get that, for the most part, with money and possessions. But what we often fail to grasp is that life itself is a stewardship. And that means we must invest our lives in the kingdom, not waste it on insignificant worldly pursuits. When we accept our lives, you see, as a gift from God, rather than something to which we are entitled, when we accept and embrace our opportunities in life as a stewardship responsibility, then even though we're probably never going to rise to second in command to Pharaoh, we will still accomplish this we will still accomplish the purposes that God has ordained for us. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John Piper writes, But whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and live for it and die for it, and you will make a difference at last. You will not waste your life. So the challenge you and I face today is, will we acknowledge our imperfections and allow God to use us in spite of ourselves? Will we recognize and rely on His grace at work in our lives every day? Will we accept our diversity and allow God to use us for His glory? Will we accept that life is a pilgrimage and that that may involve the risky route of the pilgrim? By the grace of God, will we allow trials and suffering to help make us more like Jesus? And when we come to the end of it all, will it make a difference to this world that we have lived? As we look ahead, right in front of us is Exodus, one more week in Job. But then day six of this week, we begin reading Exodus. At the end of the Joseph narrative, there are many veiled references to the Exodus. The relationship between Joseph and Pharaoh the natural disaster that brought Israel into Goshen in the first place, the rapid proliferation of a new culture and the declining Egyptian culture and this growing pharaoh cult that we're going to read about, all point to what is coming in the book of Exodus. But, the, but listen, the closing chapters of Genesis point us even farther ahead. Jacob's blessing of Judah points us ahead to the line of kings to come, particularly to King David. Judah was was his father, right? Probably great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But the more significant echo we hear calling out to us here in the closing chapters of Genesis is the echo of Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed. We we catch a glimpse of the Savior to come, the Lion of Judah. As, As we close Genesis, we can almost hear Him roar you see, the story about Joseph is not just a story of some young boy far from home who overcomes adversity and grows wealthy and powerful. No, no, Joseph plays a role in a much more significant drama. God redeemed Judah. Why? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Judah, right? Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Amminadab, And Amminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. and Ruth and Oba was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David the king. Judah's descendant David, he redeemed Judah so that Judah's descendant David could be king, and so that his greater son Jesus could be king of kings and the redeemer of God's elect. Judah offers himself initially, remember, as a substitute for Benjamin. Take me, don't take Benjamin, the son whom his father loved. Later, David's going to stand in that valley as a substitute for Israel as he faces Goliath, who represented the Philistines and and the the enemy and the oppressor of God's people. Ultimately, Jesus is going to offer himself as a substitute for the people that God has given to him. He'll go to a hill called Calvary and He'll fight and He'll defeat the enemy and He'll redeem this people for His Father. In the weeks and months ahead as we continue reading through the rest of the story of God's redemption I want you to read it in light of the truths that we've learned in the story of Joseph. On every page look for echoes of the Messiah. He's there. He's always there. Our journey their genesis has taken us from eden to egypt along the way we've met adam and abraham we have visited sodom and salem twins have struggled in the womb and men have wrestled with each other and with god barrenness and blessedness have passed before our eyes on these pages we've noted the shame of shechem and the pleasures of paradise a tower built for the glory of man provoking the wrath of the one who alone deserves glory a worldwide flood that wreaked unprecedented and never-to-be-repeated devastation, a famine that brought the family of promise together. We saw the deception of Eve and the disgrace of Dinah. We saw eyes blazed with deep-seated hatred, men consumed with lust and hearts overflowing with love. Marriages were sealed with young love, covenants sealed with eternal promises. But over it all, over it all, one theme, has arced over the pages like a rainbow, and it's not difficult to identify the theme because it introduced the book and really has never been far beneath the surface of the story. In the beginning, God. And even though our attention has been drawn away from time to time to different events, to unique people, to extraordinary places, through it all we've seen we've seen the relentless commitment of God, relentless commitment to His own eternal and blessed Purposes. We've seen his unwavering commitment to make himself known to those he created, to those that he loves. Commitments which foreshadowed a supreme and ultimate and perfect sacrifice at Golgotha. Beginning in the garden and continuing through Joseph, we've seen how the, the sinful choices of men, the deception of the enemy, the effects of the evil that's just part and parcel of this old world attempted to derail God's plan. And yet his will is always done. His purposes are always accomplished. And beloved they always will